are in Matthew 24 today, so you'll open your Bibles, and let's start with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and um, open up to Matthew chapter 24. This is a rather long section. Um, there's a lot that we can say about it, but I'm going to treat it as a whole, um, because the parables that follow this section highlight and really um, elaborate on what Jesus is saying here in this 24th chapter. So we're going to read through the entire chapter right now. So if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and, and uh, just get into a comfortable place, because this is a rather lengthy reading, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at it. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Sound familiar so far? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolations spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there 
the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be this coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? to give them food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. And we will cut him to pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. There are a few subjects, I think, that are of more interest to people than the prospect of the future, the idea of knowing the future. From ancient times right down to the present, people have been fascinated with the idea that they might possibly be able to discern what is going to happen in the days to come. In the ancient world, there was the Oracle of Delphi. In more recent times, we have the prophet Gene Dixon. But whatever the time in history, people have always been fascinated. Even presidents and first ladies have attempted to somehow discern what the future holds for themselves and for the nation. Now, there are any number of reasons why people are fascinated with the future, I think. I want to suggest to you three reasons today. Uh, some people would like to know the future in order to avoid disaster. Uh, if they know what's coming around the bend and if there's cat catastrophe on the horizon, perhaps if they know the future, they're able to avoid it. Other people would very much like to know the future, if for no other reason than to be able to plan successfully. I think we would all agree that if we knew what the stock market was going to do tomorrow or in the weeks to come, uh, that would prove profitable to us. Uh, we could plan accordingly and perhaps become very wealthy indeed. And still other people are interested in knowing the future if for no other reason than just idle curiosity. Some people just like to have the inside track. 
But the reality is people have always been fascinated with this sort of thing, knowing the future. And so we have astrologers and people who channel through crystals and you have people who work with tarot cards and a whole host of things in order to discern what the future holds. Prophecy is a fascinating subject. And yet it needs to be said that prophecy is a notoriously difficult subject. It's notoriously difficult if for no other reason than most prophecies, quite frankly, are vague. Um, we sometimes only begin to understand their meaning with the advantage of hindsight. Uh, one of the classic examples of this is the case of Croesus of Lydia. You've heard the expression as rich as Croesus. Croesus was indeed a very wealthy man, but his kingdom of Lydia was being threatened by the rise of Cyrus of Persia. Uh, Cyrus is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, he was a very powerful king, and Croesus didn't know whether he should go out and make war against Cyrus. And so he went to the oracle at Delphi and uh, consulted with the oracle to discern whether or not he should go to war against his enemy. And uh, the prophet gave him a word. Uh, she said that if he went to war against Cyrus of Persia, he would destroy a great empire. Well, Croesus made the decision to go to war against Cyrus, and he was soundly defeated, and his empire was destroyed. And so you see, the prophecy came true. A great empire was destroyed, but it was not the empire of Cyrus. It was the empire of Croesus. But the point of, of the prophecy, you see, and this is the way it is with most prophecies, is that it could have gone either way. It was one of those prophecies that was going to be fulfilled one way or the other. The prophet was never wrong. And oftentimes you'll discover that that's the way it is with modern prophecies. They can go either way, and they're only fulfilled with the advantage of hindsight. Well, I'd like to say that biblical prophecies are a little easier to discern, but oftentimes they are just as difficult. They are just as contentious. And if you study the book of Daniel or you study the book of Revelation, you quickly discover that the commentators oftentimes disagree on many points. So even biblical prophecy can be a contentious and a divisive issue. Well, when you turn to Matthew chapter 24, what you quickly discover is that the disciples were no exception to the rule. They too were very interested in what the future would hold. They were greatly interested in knowing what was around the bend. And that's why they came to Jesus in verse 3 with a question, really two questions linked together. But the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign that these things are about to happen? Now, the context is really very simple. Uh, Jesus, of course, had been in the city of Jerusalem. We've already noted that at the end of each day, he seemed not to stay in the city of Jerusalem, but was returning to Bethany. He is exiting the temple precincts at this point, and the disciples came up to him just in awe of the remarkable buildings around the temple complex. Uh, the temple was built by Herod the Great. It was an extraordinary structure, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was made of polished stone. They said when the sun would rise, the sun would gleam off that polished stone to such a degree that you couldn't even look at the building without hurting your eyes. It was an absolutely magnificent structure, the most dominant feature in the entire city of Jerusalem. And it was impressive. And the disciples, being men from Galilee, not getting to the city very often, 
or just in awe of this magnificent structure in the same way that somebody who's never been in New York City would be in awe of the skyscrapers and the Empire State Building or somebody going to Washington DC would be in awe of the Washington Monument or the Capitol Building. That's the way it was for the disciples. They were in all these buildings. They were simply drawing Jesus' attention to them. And then the Lord says this. He said, I tell you the truth, the time is coming when not one stone will be left standing upon another. Now, that would have been very shocking to Jesus' disciples. There was an air of permanence about the temple. This was the place where God dwelt symbolically with his people as far as the Jewish people were concerned. The very thought that the temple would cease to exist and everything associated with the temple, the sacrifices and so forth, it was just impossible for them to believe almost. And that's why they came to Jesus and they asked the question, when will these things be? Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's really two questions that the disciples are asking. They're not simply asking, when will this happen? That is to say, when will the temple be destroyed? They're also asking, when will the coming of the Son of Man take place? It's pretty apparent by the way they ask this question that the disciples are actually linking together two events that were not necessarily meant to go together. If you look back just a few verses at the end of chapter 23, you'll understand what I'm talking about. In chapter 23, beginning at verse 37, you see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, over the fact that the people of Jerusalem, particularly the Jewish religious leaders at this point, were beginning to reject him. And Jesus is making a break with those Jewish religious leaders. We're told that he was weeping over Jerusalem, this great city, but this city had, who had rejected the message of the Lord, this city that had killed the prophets. So look at verse 37 and following. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is departing the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a foreshadowing of the fact that he was going to depart them in an ultimate sense. He was going to mount the arms of the cross. He was going to be laid in a borrowed tomb. But one day, that one who had been derided and rejected was going to come again with power and great glory, no longer as a victim, but as the king. So that's what Jesus is saying. He said, I tell you the truth, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the disciples took that to mean a reference to his return in glory, his second coming. But then Jesus goes on to say in the verses that immediately follow, and remember this, there were no chapter divisions when these books were originally written. The chapter divisions were put in centuries later to help us read the text. So if you were reading these verses in the original manuscripts, verse 39 would have flowed immediately into what we call chapter 24, verse 1. So Jesus says, you will not see me again until I come again in glory. And then he says of the temple, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left standing upon another until they are all cast down. And so the disciples put these two things together, the idea of Jesus' second coming and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. They assumed that these two events went together. 
But Jesus is going to go on to explain that they were both future events, but they were not two events that were necessarily linked together. Now, what we have here in Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus talking about the future. In particular, Jesus referring to what it's going to be like in the last days. Now, as you well know, here again is another area of great contention. Uh, people debate and fight over the whole issue of prophecy. They also debate and fight over the more specific issue of what it will be like when Christ comes again. It's a future event. What is it going to be like in those last days? Indeed, what are the last days? Are we living in the last days? That's the question that many people would ask. Well, let me suggest to you that when the New Testament talks about the last days, it's really talking about that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return again in glory. The best way to understand history from a biblical point of view is to understand history as divided basically into three sections, three acts, if you will. Okay? It's a three-act play. The first act, and, and by the way, some acts are longer than others, but there are three of them, three major segments in history. The first act is what we would call the story of creation, the story of the fall, and that whole period of time we would call the Old Testament from Genesis leading up to the coming of Christ. That's the first act. It is the story of mankind's rebellion in Eden, it's the story of God calling to himself a nation. It's the, call, it's the story of God getting the Adam project, if you will, back on track by choosing Israel to be his people. And that's the first act, what we see described here in the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Malachi. The second act is much briefer. The second act is the story of the arrival of the Messiah, the long-promised, long-anticipated Savior who'd been foretold in the Old Testament prophets. It's his arrival until his departure. So whereas the first act is thousands of years, the second act is basically 33 years. It's the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And the third act, which leads to the finale, is that period of time between the Messiah's departure into heaven, his ascension, and his return again in glory. Those are the last days. Now, of course, everybody wants to know, are we living in the last of the last days? Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But if somebody asks you, are we living in the last days? The answer is yes. According to what the New Testament says, we are indeed living in the last days. And, and what can we expect to see in those last days? What will be the characterization of those last days? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 24. He says, if you want to know what it's going to be like to live in those last days, in that period of time between my departure and my return, it's going to be a time of great difficulty. Jesus said it's going to be a time of hardship. It's going to be a time of privation. Look at verse 5. He says, in those last days, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, 
and they will lead many astray. So the first thing that you can expect to see, he says, in the last days, for those who are living in that period until his arrival in glory are false messiahs, the rise of saviors, people who claim to have all the answers. And if you think about it, down through the centuries, there have been any number of saviors, messiahs who have appeared on the scene who claim to have all the answers. Second thing he said you can expect to see is rumors, rumors of wars and wars themselves. Verse six, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Something else that will characterize this time period, Jesus said, are famines and earthquakes. Verse eight, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And verse nine, he says, there will be times of persecution, tribulation, difficulty. They will put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is a period that's going to be characterized by false messiahs, by wars and rumors of wars, by famines, by earthquakes, by persecutions, by apostasy, he says. Many will fall away. Many of those who claim to be followers will betray one another and hate one another. And finally, he says, there will be the arrival of false prophets who will arise and attempt to lead many astray, and lawlessness will increase. Now, as I was reading through that passage initially, I asked the question, does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> if you've been watching the news, you realize that this is a description, really, of the days in which we are living. We are living, you see, in the last days. That's what Jesus is saying. We have false messiahs, People who make all kinds of promises are incapable of delivering. Oftentimes, those are politicians. We certainly have wars and the rumors of wars throughout the world, over the globe. We have famines. We have earthquakes, signs in the heavens. There are persecutions. We don't like to think about this, but more Christians were persecuted and put to death, martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. When we think of Christian martyrdom, we generally think of those periods in history during the reign of Nero or Diocletian or the reign of Queen Mary in England, for example. But the reality is more Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. We see apostasy. We see many people who profess to be Christians falling away from the faith, denying the truth of the scriptures. We see the rise of false prophets. These are the characterizations, not simply of Jesus' day, but of our day. And yet Jesus says, all of these things... Are they the signs of the last of the last days? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, these are but the beginning. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, Jesus does deal with these two events. I said the disciples combined them together, the destruction of Jerusalem and his coming again in glory. And both of them are events that are going to take place in the last days. But Jesus separates them out, and rightly so. And he deals specifically with this whole issue of the destruction of Jerusalem. Because in the minds of the disciples, that was the most pressing issue. Again, as Jews, they could not even begin to imagine the destruction of the temple. This was where God would dwell with his people. If the temple came to an end, there would be no more sacrificial system. Incidentally, if you go to Jerusalem today and you visit what they call the Wailing Wall, it's the last section of the temple complex that still stands. 
It's the outer retaining wall. It's called the wailing wall because the Jews go there and they weep and they wail for what has been lost. If you think about it, that's where the sacrifices for sins took place. That means for 2,000 years, no sacrifice has been offered for sins. All of the guilt, all of the wickedness, all of the vice of humanity has been building up for all the centuries, and there has been no sacrifice for it in the minds of the Jewish people. That is a disaster. That is a catastrophe of epic proportions. And so when Jesus said, not one stone was going to be left standing upon another, the disciples were absolutely mortified by it. And yet, this event actually took place during the lifetime of the disciples themselves. In the year 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came in and sacked the city of Jerusalem, raised the temple, and according to some reports, put over 100,000 people, men, women, and children, to the sword. That's why Jesus said, pray that it does not happen on a Sabbath or in the winter. Pray that you are not a nursing mother because it's going to be destruction, the likes of which no one has ever seen before nor will see again. It's described in terms of the end of the world because for Jews, that's what it would have been like. It would have been like the end of the world. Jesus makes reference in verse 15 to the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. What is the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel was referring to? Well, in Daniel's day, around 168 BC, the Greek general Antiochus Epiphanes sacked the city of Jerusalem and invaded the temple precincts and erected an altar where the altar of sacrifice was normally located. And on that, he erected another altar, an altar to Jupiter, um, what the Romans called Jupiter. He would have called Zeus. And what he did is he sacrificed a pig on that altar in the place where the Jews would have normally offered their sacrifices to Yahweh or to Jehovah. Now, as you can imagine, that was the greatest insult imaginable to the Jewish people and to their religion, sacrificing a pig to a pagan deity on the site of the temple that was dedicated to God. That was an abomination that caused desolation in the temple. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that something akin to that, something like that, was going to happen in their own lifetime. And indeed it did. It's hard for them to even imagine something that terrible happening again, but it did. And again, in their own lifetime. Jesus was speaking perhaps around the year 33 AD. By the year 70 AD, it had all taken place. And yet Jesus says this. He says, even when that happens, as terrible as that is, that is not yet the end. And I think this is a very important lesson for us. So often we are looking at all of the things that are happening in the world and, and we become convinced that we are living in the last of the last days. Surely God is going to come and bring judgment to the world because of all of its wickedness. Well, Jesus was describing events that were very much akin to what we're seeing in the world today. And yet he tells his disciples, these things are not necessarily the end. So if that's the case, what is Jesus trying to say to his disciples? And, and indeed, what is he trying to say to us? Because we know that Matthew is not a dead letter. 
And this gospel is a living word. It still speaks to us across time and history. For the here and now, it has application for our lives. So what is Jesus trying to say when he describes all of these terrible things in the last days? Well, basically what he's trying to do is prepare us. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. So often as Christians, we think that if we give our lives over to Christ, everything is going to be easy. It's a prosperity gospel. But let me tell you something. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. There is nothing, nothing in the scriptures that tells us that following Jesus Christ is going to be easy. Quite the contrary. In fact, in two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on this very subject. The latter part of Matthew chapter 10 is all about the sufferings, privations, and difficulties that are going to attend those who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. That was an invitation to come and die. So the first lesson that Jesus is trying to impart to his disciples is that what are the last days going to be like? You want to know what the future is going to be like? Jesus said, I'll tell you what the future is going to be like. It is going to be characterized by great suffering, great pain, great hardship. Paul said the same thing to his young protege, Timothy. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 24 and flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a very important section. And Paul is writing to his young friend. This second letter to Timothy you might call Paul's last will and testament. Uh, at the time that he was writing this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome in what was known as the Mamertine Jail. He had been thrown into a cell which was um, an old cistern. There was hardly any room to even lie down. It was a terrible place, and Paul knew um, that his life was drawing to an end. One of the reasons that he's writing to Timothy is to pass the baton onto this young man who was living in Ephesus. And he's trying to prepare Timothy. Timothy was very different from Paul. Uh, Paul was this sort of strong and forthright individual. Everything we learn about Timothy is that he was rather timid. He was a young man. He was sickly. And yet Paul is passing on the responsibility of leading the church to him. The mantle of apostleship, as it were, is falling to Timothy. And he's trying to prepare Timothy. Like Jesus, he believes that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so he wants Timothy to understand what he's facing, to go into it with his eyes wide open. And here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then Paul goes on to explain what that difficulty looks like. And you could hardly find a more apt description. I said that in my devotion this morning. You could hardly find a more apt description of where we are right now than what Paul gives right here, even though he wrote these words 2,000 years ago. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure 
rather than lovers of God. And to cap it all off, he says, they'll have the appearance of godliness, but they'll deny its power. Listen, that is not a description of Timothy's world alone. That is a description of our world. And as Christians, we are called to live in a different way, to be countercultural, to walk to the beat of a different drum. So what the Lord was trying to say to his disciples is what Paul was trying to say to Timothy. You want to know what the last days are going to be like? They're going to be difficult. They're going to be hard for the followers of Jesus Christ. But even though they're going to be hard, they're going to be difficult, and you're going to think to yourself, can it get any worse? Nevertheless, understand this does not necessarily mean that the end has come. All down through the centuries, every time people have gone through terrible periods in history, they look back and they say, surely this is the end of the world. And each time we've discovered it is not yet the time. Jesus said, these are but labor pains. Now, when you begin to have labor pains, that's indicative of the fact that, yes, a delivery is coming, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's coming right now. In fact, Jesus is very clear. The last days are going to be difficult. But nobody knows the exact moment. It does no good to speculate. I'm reminded of the story of the old Puritan living in New England. The whole community became convinced because of the teachings of a particular preacher that Christ was coming back on a particular day. And the entire community closed up shop and went out on a hill dressed in white robes ready to meet the Lord. And as they were making their way out of town, they noticed one man working diligently at his desk. They rapped on the river and they, on the window and they asked him why, why he wasn't going out with everyone else to meet the Lord. And his response was, if the Lord is coming back today, I want him to find me doing the work that he has given me to do. That should be our attitude as well. Jesus makes it clear, nobody knows. Jesus even says, not even I know when my return will take place. Now you think about that for a moment. If even Christ does not know, how can any prognosticators or prophets know? Chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son, of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will it be with the coming of the son of man. He goes on to describe it as a sudden event. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. No one knows the exact time and it's useless to engage in idle speculation. Instead, Jesus says, what you need to do is to be ready. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is what Jesus is trying to convey here to us. He's saying, if you're going to be serious about this Christian life, if you're going to live in a countercultural way, you're going to find that these days are difficult. But don't think that simply because they're difficult, the end has come. Nobody knows when the Son of Man is going to return. All we do know is that it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. Many are going to be taken by surprise. Therefore, it is our responsibility as Christian people to be what? 
to be ready at all times. William Barclay and his little commentary tells a wonderful little proverb. It's the proverb of three demons, and they're talking to a senior demon. And the senior demon has given them the responsibility, sort of one of those screw tape sort of scenes. But the senior devil has given the responsibility to the other demons to go out and ruin lives. And one says that he is going to go out and ruin lives by telling men that there is no judgment. And the senior demon says, oh, well, you won't ruin many lives like that. Men know that there's going to be a judgment. And the other demon says, well, I will go out and tell them that God will never punish the wicked. And the senior demon says, oh, you will not ruin many lives like that because they know that God will punish. He is a God of justice. And the third demon said, well, I will go out and ruin lives because I will tell people that there is no hurry. And the senior demon said, ah, yes, you go. You go, for you will ruin millions. That's the way it is. Many people think, well, there's no hurry. I've got plenty of time to get my act together, but Jesus makes it very clear. Now is the time, now is the day of salvation, for no one knows when the Son of Man will come with power and with great glory. How are we to live in these difficult times? How are we as Christian people to bear witness in these last days, in these times of difficulty, not knowing when the Son of Man will return? Well, I want to share a story with you. I won't do justice to it, um, but it's a true story. Uh, it took place in 1939, in the waning days of 1939, and it happened to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse was, back in the 1940s and 50s, the pastor of the great 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, Dr. Barnhouse was one of the great preachers of the 20th century. Uh, his broadcasts are still heard on some radio stations, particularly in the Northeast. But in 1939, uh, Dr. Barnhouse was doing a series of teachings uh, in Scotland. And um, he had a week or two between the teachings in Scotland and when he had to be in Ireland to do some other teachings. And it just so happened that his wife and family had come and they were vacationing on the coast of France. And so when he finished up his teachings in Scotland, he decided that he would take a plane over to France and spend a week with them before he had to return to Ireland to begin this whole new series of teachings. Well, he went down to the coast and he had his passport, handed it to the clerk, and the clerk looked at him and asked him why he wanted to go to France, particularly at this point. Remember, it's 1939. So Germany is threatening the invasion of Danzig at this point, Poland. And uh, Dr. Barnhouse explained, he said that he was coming back in about a week's time, that he was going to Ireland. The clerk there at the desk in the airport said, well, I advise you, if you hope to be back in Ireland in a week, that you do not go to France today. Well, Dr. Barnhouse's family was over there, and so he said that he was decided he was still going. He understood the risks, but he was still going. So he met his family over there. They were on the French Riviera. They were vacationing. It was the summertime. There was a great deal of activity. Everybody was out on the shore. Everybody was just sort of carrying on with life as though nothing was happening. Every now and then, however, a plane would fly over and everybody would become silent. 
And then somebody would shout out, it's one of ours. And everybody would go back to their regular planning. But then as the week began to draw to a close, things began to get serious. The Germans rolled into Danzig. The British told them that they needed to depart or war would be declared, but the Germans refused to depart. Dr. Barnhouse and family made their way to the coast to get on a plane to return to the UK so that they could go to Ireland, but they were told that no planes were flying across the channel at that point. They had to book the last passage that they could find on a boat. They took the boat across the channel. As they're making their way across, Dr. Barnhouse introduced himself to the captain of the ship and was invited up on the deck. And the captain and the preacher began to discuss with each other the serious situation. And the captain was very clear, this was the end. He said, there'll be no turning back. He said, if the Germans do not withdraw, the prime minister will have no choice but to declare war. Dr. Barnhouse had noticed as he was making his way to the ship that he could hear the toxins sounding throughout the countryside. Now, in the medieval era, they had developed a whole series of signals by means of church bells. Um, some bells would ring to celebrate great events, like the birth of a royal child or a wedding. Others would uh, sound the tolling of the bells, uh, the sign that somebody had died. The toxin would sign would be uh, rung in the various churches as a sign that war was about to take place. It was the means of calling people to action in an age before people were even able to read. When you heard the toxin sounding, you, you grabbed your arms and you ran out to the place where you were supposed to gather as an army. And the toxin was sounding as Dr. Barnhouse was making his way to the coast. They finally docked in England. And when they landed in England and they made their way into the city of London, Dr. Barnhouse said it was absolute pandemonium. Everywhere he looked, soldiers were getting on trains and making their way to the place where they were supposed to gather. He said children were being evacuated, even at that point early in the war from the city of London for fear that there would be bombing. And he said there was one little boy that he never forgot. One little boy, somebody had given him a, a chocolate bar and he had managed to smear it all over his face and he had wet his pants and he was sitting there on the curb just crying his little eyes out. And Dr. Barnhouse said that was the picture of the nation and the world at that point. Well, eventually he made his way up to Ireland. The train had to stop at any number of points to let troops on and let troop trains pass. He finally made it to Ireland. He arrived at three o'clock in the morning. The minister met him, they took him to his hotel. And as he was in his hotel, left there standing alone in the middle of the night, he was trying to think, what am I going to say tomorrow? I'm, I'm the speaker, I'm the preacher for this occasion, what am I going to say? Well, he was invited to speak at one of the largest churches in Ireland at that time, St. Enoch's. He arrived early in the morning at 10 o'clock. He was taken into the vestry room. The minister came in and began to shake his hand. The minister was so nervous, he just kept repeatedly shaking his hand and saying to Dr. Barnhouse, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so thankful that you're preaching. I wouldn't know what to say to anybody. There are so many young lads out there, and this is going to be the last sermon that many of them are ever going to hear. Dr. Barnhouse came in. They had an opening hymn. He took his place on the stand. And as he was sitting there, a man came in with a note, handed it to the minister. The minister read it, handed it to Dr. Barnhouse. 
It said that the Germans had refused to evacuate and the prime minister had declared war. Moments later, the preacher was introduced. The text that he chose for that day, the text that he chose when he was standing in his hotel room that night was this text from Matthew chapter 24. And there will come wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. But do not be alarmed. And Dr. Barnhouse rehearsed all of the things that I've just described for you. He talked about how he made his way to France and the planes were flying over. And then he repeated the refrain, do not be alarmed. He talked about how he made his way toward the coast and he could hear the toxin sounding, sounding the call to war. And he repeated the refrain, do not be alarmed. He talked about arriving there in Victoria Station in London and seeing that little boy who'd wet his pants, chocolate smeared on his face, crying out, the children being torn from their families, husbands being torn from their wives. And he cried out, do not be alarmed. And he looked out over that church, which he thought was going to be empty, what was packed to the rafters with all these young men preparing to go off to war. And he said, do not be alarmed. And the tension in the church had reached a fever pitch. How in the world could he say to these people, do not be alarmed? And he took his fist and he shook it toward heaven. And he said, God, how can people not be alarmed in times like this? How can Jesus say that? And then came the answer. Jesus could say, do not be alarmed because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the one who holds the future. And what was true for those men and women in 1930, 1939, 1940 is also true for us. You know, sometimes we look at the news, we look at what's happening. We look at the destruction that is taking place all across our country, the violence that is sweeping, not just America, but Great Britain as well. It's fascinating to me that the Black Lives Matter movement has now spread the whole way to Britain. Police officers are being assaulted in London. They're having bicycles thrown at them. It's spreading throughout the world. We hear wars and rumors of wars. There's alarm, there's violence. And we think, are we living in the last days? And Jesus says, these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. And we say, well, how are we supposed to live in times like this? And Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Of all people, we Christians are not to be alarmed. Why? Because Jesus Christ is still sovereign. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. Many of you have probably heard of him. Eric Metaxas wrote a wonderful biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never read it, it's an inspiring story. I encourage you to get a copy of it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, lived in Germany in the 1930s, came over here to the United States and lived for a time and taught for a time in New York City at Union Theological Seminary. But then as war clouds began to gather on the horizon, the same war which Dr. Barnhouse found himself involved, Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided to go back to Germany. And he became involved in what became known as the Confessing Church Movement. Uh, many of the church leaders, sadly, 
uh, capitulated to the Nazis and conspired with them and collaborated with them. But there were a few, and Bonhoeffer was one of them, who refused, who stood against Hitler. In fact, he got involved in a plot to actually assassinate Hitler, and as a result was arrested and imprisoned. He would become the last man, listen to this, the last man to be executed by order of Adolf Hitler at the end of World War II. Now you think about that. Hitler's in his bunker, ready to take his own life, and he's thinking about all the people that hated him. The allies have surrounded Berlin, the ring is closing, and the last man that he wants executed is a German pastor. Well, during his time of imprisonment, the German guards got to know Bonhoeffer. And one of the things they noticed about him is that even though death was on the horizon for him, they knew that he was never going to escape. They noticed he was nevertheless filled with a sense of joy, filled with a sense of peace, filled with a sense of confidence and hopefulness. And one of the guards came in one day and they asked him, they said, Herr Bonhoeffer, how can you be so confident when you know that at any moment you've made such great enemies, at any moment the word could come down that you are to be executed? How can you be filled with such confidence and hopefulness? And Bonhoeffer replied, it's because, well, I do not know the future. Well, I know who holds the future. While I do not know the future, well, I know who holds the future. And when all is said and done, folks, that's really the message of Matthew chapter 24. We can get all caught up on the details. We can get into all the, the, the different theories of eschatology, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, preterism, all of those things that, that fascinate people. But what Jesus is basically saying to us is, for those who are living in the last, last days, for those who would seek to be his disciples, understand there are going to be times of difficulty. It's going to be hard. We're going to be countercultural, and we're going to be hated by the world because of it. But we are to take heart. Because even though we don't know what the future holds, we don't know when the Son of Man is coming, nevertheless, we do know who holds the future. And when he comes, it will be a day, yes, of retribution for wickedness and evil. But for those of us whose lives are hidden in him, it will be the dawn of our redemption. It will be a day of vindication. So when you turn on the news today, when you pick up the paper and you hear about pandemics and the rising COVID-19 cases in South Carolina, when you see the destruction that is taking place all across our country with monuments being torn down, laws being torn up, cities burning, and you're thinking, how now shall we live? Remember Jesus' words, do not be alarmed. God is still in control, and one day Jesus will return in glory, and everything that is broken in this world will be mended once and for all. That's the message for us today, and for it we say thanks be to God. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.
Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. It's true, we do not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Grant that we may be a people in these difficult days who continue to live for you, to let our light shine in the darkness. Grant us the grace to be willing to suffer all things for the sake of him who suffered all things for us. And speak to our hearts those sweet words of peace. Speak to our hearts by the grace of your Holy Spirit. Do not be alarmed. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, folks, she's going to unmute you. And um, just a reminder, um, next week is going to be our last Bible study. Um, not forever, God willing, um, but for the next several weeks, um, I'm going to be taking some vacation, um, and I'm going to be gone for the month of July, and I need that last week before we head off. So I apologize for that, um, but Brian's uh, screw tape letters class is going to go on. Uh, Andrew and I will be gone in the month of July, um, but we'll be worshiping with you virtually like everybody else uh, until we're able to open up. Um, Brian and Andrew, um, excuse me, Brian and Mark will be taking their vacation in August, and Andrew and I will be back for the month of August. So um, this has been, as I'm sure you can imagine, a very trying time for the clergy, very stressful time, and um, I want to make sure that the clergy are ready to go in the fall, and so we just need a little bit of R and R. Even Jesus had to sometimes get away um, off to the mountains alone, and we're helping to do the same. So we are encouraging the staff to take their vacation, but we will be back. But next week will be our last class uh, until we get back in August. So just want to let you know that. All right, she's going to unmute you, and everybody can talk and have a little time of sharing. I'll stay on for a little bit. All right, Jeff. Folks. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank, thank you. you, Jeff. Wonderful. You're welcome. And just a reminder to folks, I cannot um, unmute you myself. You have to unmute yourself on your end. Um, I'm sorry about that. Zoom changed its settings, but you do have the ability to unmute yourself now. Okay, um, and I think Ahmed had a question. Thank you, Rachel, too. You're very welcome. Yes, and great. Definitely. You're yes. so welcome. Thank you. Definitely. Thank yeah. you, Rachel. And Armand, I think you had a question for Jeff, but um, if you want to send something through the chat, that would be perfect. Yeah, my, basically, I got it. <laughs> yeah. I'd just like to know, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, it says that um, regarding the day and hour unknown, it says about that day or hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father so am I, are we to assume that jesus did not know the final hour and only god knows so that's my question in a nutshell okay um i think what the lord is saying um there is that uh, yes at that point not even he knew um when his return would be, that that was a time that was appointed by the Father only. Now that we're talking about the return in glory, we're not talking about the crucifixion here, we're not talking about the resurrection or anything like that. 
And, and the reason I make that distinction is because when you go to John's gospel, that expression, the hour, is referring to something very specific. Um, you'll find that refrain throughout the fourth gospel. Uh, my hour has not yet come. For example, on one occasion at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, um, Jesus' mother said they ran out of wine, and the Lord says to her, why are you troubling with this, me with this? My hour has not yet come. That's, that's a refrain in the Gospel of John, and that expression, the hour, is referring specifically to the moment of his crucifixion, his resurrection, the events around his passion. In Matthew here, he's referring specifically in this context, of course, to his return in glory. So apparently, Jesus was not even clear as to when that was going to be. I think this is not unusual. Um, one of the things that we do know is that um, Jesus limited himself. There was a, a degree of self-limitation. Uh, he knew who he was. He knew what his mission was in the world, but he took on human flesh. And I think Paul makes that point very clear. Um, in Philippians, he made himself a little bit lower than the angels and took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death. So at this point, yes, I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But maybe it's not. But maybe Jeff is not in reference to the hour of his return. It appears that it's in reference to the final hour. When will be the final hour? I.e., when will be the day mm -hmm. of judgment? I think that's what it's referring to. It's not. Well, I don't think it's referring to his return. Well, I, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case because if you look at the very next verse. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And what he goes on to explain is the suddenness, the unexpectedness of that event. So I don't think it's necessarily a reference to the day of judgment per se. Although, although, uh, certainly the arrival of the Son of Man will be a day of judgment. So I think within the context, I think that is um, what he's referring to. Mm -hmm. Okay, Martha, I mean, did you have a question as well? Well, it, it wasn't so much a Bible question. It was more to do with um, not being alarmed today. Um, you know, I know they've been talking about tearing down that statue of Robert E. Lee, and you and I, I know have an appreciation for him. Uh, he did a he did a lot more for our country uh, than just being a general on the Confederacy. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about all that. Um, oh, brother. Um, <laughs> uh, any, 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 I'd rather have the biblical question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, what we, I think part of what we're dealing with um, right now, and I, and I think this is the, the alarming part to me, is that um, we are trying to replace one false narrative with another false narrative. Right. And, I, and I think that that's the challenge in our day and age. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting when we talk about these monuments, um, particularly the monuments to the Confederate leaders. Robert E. Lee, in particular, was very reluctant um, to see monuments erected to the Confederacy. And he made that very clear in the post-war years. Now, Lee only lived for five years beyond the end of the war. Uh, the war ended in 1865. He died in 1870. And he made it very clear that he felt that any attempts to memorialize the Confederacy would be misunderstood. Um, so it was almost as though he was prescient in knowing what was probably going to happen here. Mm. Um, you know, the unfortunate thing about all of this is that it's what we're experiencing is really indiscriminate violence. I really believe that if people 
were, were convinced and understood, um, and, and they made a what I would call a rational approach to this, then the removal of the monuments might be justified. But let me just give you an example of why I think this is just indiscriminate and, and nobody's really thought through the issues. Uh, yes, they wanna take down the, the monuments on Monument Avenue in Richmond to General Lee, to Jeb Stewart, to Stonewall Jackson. Apparently this morning they pulled down the statue of Jefferson Davis. Mm -hmm. um, but what is interesting is that they also um, did damage to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, DC. Yeah. Which is ironic given the fact that Abraham Lincoln was the man who emancipated the slaves in 1863. And uh, in Boston, on Boston Commons, there is a magnificent memorial to the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Yes, yes. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, and I don't know how many of you have, starring uh, Denzel Washington and um, Matthew Broderick, uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, called Glory. If you've oh, seen okay. the movie Glory. It's the, it's the story of the most famous um, black regiment um, that fought during the Civil War for the Union, actually fought here in Charleston, out at Battery Wagner on Morris Island. And this monument is erected to them. Uh, they were led by a white officer, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. It's a magnificent monument to the most famous black regiment, and it was defaced in these riots. Now, it just goes to show you that what we're dealing with here is indiscriminate violence. And um, that's what's concerning to me. That's what I tried to um, address in my devotion. Um, since you're, you're hanging in there with me, I just want to turn for just a minute, if, if you will, um, to Romans chapter 13. And here's my real concern. I think if people go through the proper channels and they wanna have monuments removed and it's voted, I think people have a right to do that. Um, the reality is these are in public land and the public has a right to do with them what it wants to do. What I have a problem with is people taking the law into their own hands. And I think, you know, that's what I tried to say in the devotion today, if you haven't already heard it, that the God we worship is a God of justice. He is very much concerned about justice. Um, God hates racism. God hates prejudice. You've heard the old children's song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. He loves them all. It's not just that black lives matter or white lives matter, all lives matter because we've been made in the image of Christ. Now that, that's critical. But just because you see an injustice in the world does not justify breaking the law. Romans chapter 13, this is what Paul says. And remember, Paul is speaking in his apostle, so we are under the authority of the apostle Paul. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. <clears throat> you know, we've been talking about prophecy today. Let me just read to you a little bit of prophetic advice. Uh, these words were spoken by George Orwell in his book, 1984. Now, that's decades ago that George Orwell wrote that. Wrote Animal Farm, wrote 1984. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said as he looked toward the future. 
He said, every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten, rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Oh. Wow. Oh. I think that's the world in which we're living. And it's, it's not order, it's anarchy. And uh, that's the concerning thing to me above all else. So, um, and the other thing is, I think we Americans um, want to make um, our leaders, um, we want to say that the only people that are worthy of praise are those who measure up to the standards of our day. And I think that's hubris. Um, you cannot judge people who lived in the past by the standards of the present. Amen. The only way you can measure them is by how far they rose above the prejudices of their own day. Mm. And that's the measure of true greatness. And uh, when you use that standard, you come out with a very different result. Thank you so much. Uh, can I just make a quick follow-up? Sorry, sorry, Jeff, can I just make a quick one follow-up point in regards to you bang. that passage? Thank you. In regards to that passage where you mentioned that it's in return of uh, it's the day Jesus returns, but when the eulogy is given of Noah, that is the understanding that people thought that would be the final day, like it would be the end of the world because of the flood. So don't we therefore, isn't it therefore possible that this is in reference to the final hour, meaning the day of judgment, as to Jesus not knowing when is that final hour, as opposed to him not knowing when he is to return. Because I think the uh, parable given is of Noah, and we know that when that flood happened, everybody thought the world was going to be finished. Again, look at the context here. Now, I, I guess what I'm, I'm con a little confused by is you're making a distinction between his, his returning glory and the day of judgment, as though they are two separate events. And I'm not entirely sure that's the case. If you look at verse 29, for example, of the chapter, and I think that, that the important thing is to keep these verses in their context. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. So that moment of his return is a moment of judgment. It is the greatest size. It is the great separation. And we're going to see this more as we move on into the next chapter because there's a series of parables that Jesus gives, the first one being the parable of the ten virgins, then the parable of the, ten va of the, of the talents, of course, and, um, and then a, a final parable as well uh, about the separation, the final judgment. And you see that in chapter 25, verses 31 and following. And all of that is that great separation. It, it, it speaks of his return in glory and a day of ultimate judgment. So I, I wouldn't separate those two events. I think they're intended to be combined, conflated. They, they are describing, in, in, in one sense, the same event. His return in glory will be a day of great judgment, a great separation, 
between those who are, whose lives are hidden in his and those who have been separated from him and will be for all eternity. But why is, why is it that, that the eulogy of Noah is given? Why is the example set forth of Noah? From verses I, I, I think it's, 37. I think it's, yes, I, I think the image of Noah there is meant to give an idea of how people tarry. Um, Noah was building the ark um, even before it began to rain. And uh, Noah had preached to the people that they needed to repent. And uh, they had refused to believe it until it was too late. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to people. Those who are living in the last times, in the last days, they need to be prepared. Uh, they need to be ready because when the day of judgment comes, when the Son of Man returns in glory, the opportunity for repentance will have passed. The opportunity to be included will have passed. The door, as it were, will have shut to the ark. So now is the day. Now is the time. Uh, now is the moment of salvation, the day. So I think what Jesus is doing is simply drawing an analogy, uh, the analogy of Noah's day uh, with the, the end times when he comes again in glory. Okay, thank you. That's a very nice reply. Thank you. All right, Just a very final point. Okay. Very final point is why did, why did Jesus then not know that particular event? If it's either him or if it's the day of judgment, why doesn't he know if he's God? Oh, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, th I think that, you know, he is certainly divine, but Jesus has limited himself um, in, in becoming fully human. I mean, that, that's the Christian belief, is that while he is fully God, he is also fully human. And so he is, he is, he is a self-imposed limitation on himself. Um, Jesus became tired. Um, God, being a spirit, does not become tired. Um, Jesus became tired from time to time. He was subject to all the things that we are subject to. As the author of Hebrews says, um, he is a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he was made like us. So he is fully divine and he's fully human. This is the great mystery of the incarnation. It's what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. Uh, it's not that Jesus is 90% divine and 10% human or vice versa. He is, he is both fully fully God, fully man. Now, how do you unpack that and understand that? That is impossible. That, that's the mystery behind it. Well, thank you all very much. Um, I'm going to sign off at this point, um, but God bless you, and um, we will see you next week, and we'll talk to you real soon. God bless you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Jeff. You. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome.